0: Welcome to church. We're glad you're here with us this morning. Uh, my name is Seth Kurtz, and I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, a couple weeks ago, we started a sermon series on the parables. And uh, and last week, actually, Pastor Ricky took a break from that series. Uh, however, uh, I think what he had to say in that message will actually be really helpful to propel us into this week. So, I hope you were here for that message, but if not, then I would encourage you to go back online and check out that message later. We have all of our sermons on our website, so uh, I'd encourage you to go check that out later. Uh, But now, not that long ago, Christmas just passed, right? And I I hope you all had a wonderful Christmas. And, uh, And thinking on Christmas, I realized that there is a universal truth about all of us, the vast majority of decisions that we make are based on the past, right? Like, you have a past experience, and based on what happened in that experience, that determines how you make a decision next time, right? Uh, For example, one year while I was still living with my parents, uh, my dad had me hang the Christmas lights on the house. And see, the way that my dad would always hang the Christmas lights, is he said he would always plug them in first and then he'd hang them as they're plugged in so that he could see if there's any bulbs that have any issues, any strands that are out, anything like that. So if there's an issue, he can address it uh, as the issue comes up. Uh, This made sense to me and I trust my dad. So I went ahead and said, okay, if I'm gonna hang the Christmas lights, I'll do it the same way. So I plugged them in and I start hanging all the Christmas lights. Things are going great. And then towards the end of the house, I mean, I was almost done. Towards the end, I remember hearing the pop of the nail gun, a scream, and then seeing black and trying to figure out why I was on my back. See, it eventually occurred to me, the scream was mine. Um, I had stapled through the wire in the Christmas lights and electrocuted myself, fallen off the ladder and was on my back. And now see... See, fast forward to now and I've made some important decisions, right? Number one, I moved out of my parents' house, right? Problem solved. Uh, Number two, I also don't hang Christmas lights anymore. Like I'm not trying to be a Grinch or anything, but I just don't trust them. Like. We, we put some Christmas lights up on our porch this year that, like, as long as I didn't even need a step stool or nail gun or anything, like, we're good. We can do those. But even when they're unplugged, like, I got trust issues now. So, see, those decisions were based on a past experience, right? But, see, sometimes, sometimes for Christmas, we make choices based on the future. This one's, this one's pretty easy to explain. See, um... How many of you who are parents have said these words? You better knock that off or I'm going to tell Santa. Right? See, you want your kids to make a decision based on the future. Right? If you don't stop that, Santa's not coming. Right? I'll tell him to go to the next kid's house, but not this one. Right? So, see, there, there's, you're suggesting to your children that they need to make decisions based on the future. And and sure, there's some past experience that, that drives the hope of a future into their decision. Your kids remember the gifts that they got last year, and that influences how they want next year to go, right? Well, having just come out of Advent, I think it's important that the past coming of Jesus Helps us to make our decisions based on the future, knowing that Jesus is coming back once again and not as a baby in a manger this time. See, in in these parables, Jesus ends up telling this parable that, that he explains what that second coming is going to look like, how to prepare for it, what it's all about. And so we're going to look at that this morning. And if you've got your Bibles with you, I'd encourage you to follow along. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 25. If you don't have your Bibles, we will have the verses up on the screens. But I'd highly encourage if you do have a physical Bible or even on your phone to follow along there. Because we're going to read through the whole section right up front. And then we're going to break it apart. So if you have it with you, you can reference it along as we, as we keep going. All right, So Matthew Chapter 25, we're going to read the whole section, give you all the context up front. So starting in verse 31, Jesus is talking about his return and he says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. And then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they'll also answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? And then he'll answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, As you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for uh, these stories and lessons that were taught by Jesus and recorded for us to see still today. Uh, We just ask that that Holy Spirit, that you would be present with us, that you would illuminate our hearts and minds, that we could uh, take your truth and use it to change our lives and draw closer to you. Uh, We ask that if there's anybody here this morning who does not yet have a relationship with you, Jesus, that you would draw them to you. We pray that you would put people around them who would encourage them and show them your love. And uh, we just thank you for this moment. We ask that everything that we do here and beyond these walls would be all for the sake of your honor and glory. We love you, Jesus. And it's your perfect name we pray. Amen. So the first thing that Jesus is looking for us to do here in this story is something a little odd, but he wants us to remember the future. Remember the future. See, to start, uh, Jesus is definitely not Santa Claus, right? Hopefully all of us know that. But we should have something in us that is similar to our children preparing for Christmas, right? Instead of constantly looking back And just looking back and thinking about the good old days and and what once was and how things used to be, instead of just looking back, a look back should remind us that we need to be looking forward, right? We've been told what is to come, so there should be an emphasis on remembering the future. And Matthew Uh, His record of this moment begins with Jesus telling about himself. He calls himself the Son of Man. And, And he talks about coming in his glory with all of the angels and with him sitting on his glorious throne. And the followers of Jesus had eagerly been awaiting this moment. See, they were living in a period where they were being oppressed by the Romans, and they finally felt that, yes, God has heard our cries, and he sent the Messiah to rescue us and take the throne back from Caesar. That's what they were waiting for. And of course, Jesus had something different in mind. Jesus was looking at a much bigger picture than the one that they had, and sometimes we're really good at looking back and, and mocking the early Jesus followers and saying, like, guys, didn't you know that Jesus had a bigger picture than just the Roman government, right? Didn't you know he was after something bigger than that? But then we do the same thing as them. Like, I, I distinctly remember having disagreements with my boss at my first job and walking away from the disagreements and saying, Lord Jesus, Come quickly. Like, get me out of this place, right? If I'm being totally honest, there are times that I find myself breaking up fights between my three kids and saying, Jesus, do you really expect me to do this for another 18 years? Come quickly, (laughs) right? But on a more realistic note, and on a more serious note, some of us are crying out because of financial burden. Some of us are crying out because of abuse. Some of us are crying out because of trauma. Some of us are crying out to Jesus for all sorts of reasons. There are legitimate reasons. But the reality is that Jesus came and is coming for something so much bigger than any of those things. Now listen, listen very carefully. That does not devalue those things. What it does mean is that Jesus is far more worried about treating the illness than just the symptoms. See, the important thing for us to keep in mind is that Jesus is so wildly passionate about you that he is more, that he's interested in going deeper than just your financial burden, deeper than just your abuse, deeper than just your traumas. See, he's coming back to sit on a throne and asking us to give him more than just pieces of our lives and to instead give over everything so that he can transform us and bring us into the fullness of life that he alone can offer. One of, I think, the strangest stories in the Bible, and keep in mind, there are a lot of weird stories in the Bible, like I don't know if you guys have tried to read through it, but it's weird, and, and this story isn't even Old Testament. Okay, one of the strangest stories I think is in Mark chapter one. And you can go back and you can read this on your own later, but I'm just gonna briefly summarize this for you. In Mark chapter one, Jesus starts his ministry and he goes to the synagogue for the very first time where traditionally he would go and, and teach. And he goes there and he doesn't just teach, but he starts healing people. And this is the first time that we're seeing Jesus healing people. So naturally, what's gonna happen the first time Jesus heals somebody? You're gonna be like, what do I need healed? Oh my goodness, like let me get in line, like Jesus, fix my my feet, my, my arms, like I don't know, something's probably wrong with me, fix it, right? And so people start lining up from all over the city to have Jesus come and heal them. And this goes deep into the night until finally Jesus has to retreat to go home and sleep. And then Mark records this for us and he tells us that come morning, before the sun was even up, Jesus gets up and he leaves the house to go find a place of solitude where he goes and he simply prays to the father. And as Jesus is gone, the apostles wake up and they notice, Oh no, people from all over are showing up to have Jesus heal them. Like there's already lions outside waiting for him. And so they're scrambling, trying to figure out how do we get all these people organized? And what are we going to do? Peter, go find Jesus. Why is he not here right now? And so they go and they find Jesus in this place of solitude. And they're like, Jesus, what are you doing? Come on, let's go. We've got to go heal these people. And what makes this story so strange is the shocking response of Jesus. As these people are lined up, thinking, finally, I can get my life back. All from a touch from Jesus. And Jesus turns to his apostles. And he says, let's go teach somewhere else for that's what I've come to do. Right, we've got no record that Jesus went and told the people, hey, I'm sorry, I've got to go teach somewhere. He told the apostles. We don't know if he told those people. We don't know how long they were there waiting. This is such a strange story, but it's so important because Jesus recognized that he was after something so much bigger than just the physical ailments. In fact, what he's after is so big that the physical ailments will be cured. But, but for now, he knew what he needed to be about. He knew what his mission was. (laughs) And this is hard sometimes, right? Because we know that rescue is coming, but we don't know when. We know that Jesus is going to sit on that throne and make all things right. But we don't know when. And and sometimes we sit and we pray, but Jesus, can't you heal me now? And sometimes it feels like he's left to go teach somewhere else. And that's hard. (laughs) There's not a lot to say beyond just that. Is a hard place to be. But this is why we have to remember the future. We have to remember that rescue is coming. And Jesus moves on in this parable and he says that after he comes and sits on his throne, he separates the sheep from the goats, or in other words, the righteous from the unrighteous. And then he says this in verse 34. He says, come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Hold on, Jesus. What are we talking about? <laughs> like, like, what does it mean to inherit the kingdom of God, right? Right? Well, this is, this is pretty important to know because Jesus taught about the kingdom of God more than anything else that he taught about. And he also gives us a little clue here in this passage. He says, from the foundation of the world. This is important. See, in the beginning, all the way back in Genesis, God creates Adam and Eve and he tells them to rule over creation and to tend to the garden. Right, this is a very kingdom-oriented word, rule, right? Right? Okay, some of you said yes. Even head nods are okay. So very kingdom-oriented rule, and this is, this is the idea. This was the original kingdom ideal. And this is what the effort of Jesus is pressing into. God is taking us back as he takes us forward. The future work of Jesus is all pointing to God's original plan of perfection in that garden. And as he takes us forward, it's all based on that previous perfection. That's the ideal kingdom. So then what does it mean to inherit that? Well, it's it's twofold. There's an already but not yet idea happening here. Happens in much of Scripture. Already but not yet. See, Christ followers immediately inherit the kingdom of God, but we are still waiting to inherit the kingdom of God. You feel the tension in that statement? Okay, two of you do. All right, just making sure you're still with me. So we're going to work through this in reverse order, all right? So we're going to look at the not yet. See, what we're waiting for is the perfect ideal. We're waiting for the, the, the fulfillment of the final passages, the final pages in the book of Revelation. Jesus is actively working to create a kingdom in which he is the only king. The enemy and all of his followers are defeated. All sin and death will be defeated, and creation will rejoice in perfection. Amen? And this is the really cool part, church. We don't just get to be in that, but we get to participate in that. Paul tells us that we are joint heirs with Christ. We will inherit that perfect kingdom alongside him. And so we wait. We wait for that perfection, and we rest in that hope. We allow ourselves to be encouraged in that hope. So I don't want you to miss how important this is in the current state of this world. See, I know that all of us are exhausted by what the world has thrown at us over the past few years. Don't let exhaustion triumph, but instead rest. Rest in hope. Spend some time reading about what Jesus teaches about the kingdom of God. Rest in those last chapters of Revelation as a reminder of what it is to come. And allow that hope to swell up inside of you because this is energizing. And that energy is important for the next part. See, there is a portion of the kingdom of God that is already, that is already. Jesus came teaching that the kingdom of God is at hand, and he taught and he healed people for three years before his crucifixion. See, when I was growing up, I I remember the first time my family got a family computer, right? The first time a computer entered into our house. Anybody remember like the family computer, right? Like not like everybody in the house had a computer. There was the family computer, it's this big box that sat on the floor, and there was another big box that you looked at sat up on the desk, right? Uh, Laptops were not a thing. And I, I remember the first time we got that family computer, and there was this really cool moment where we were able to take a phone cable and plug it into the back of that computer and make it do something Incredible. We could make the computer make all sorts of horrifying noises, and then, boom, the results of the internet, right? Some of you are old enough to remember exactly what those noises sounded like. Remember that wonderful dial-up tone? Like, I remember that in the moment, that noise was awful, but now it's just like pure nostalgia. And... And I remember, I remember finding the first game that I'd ever heard of where you could play with other players that were online across the world, right? I played this game. If you're not my age, you've probably never heard of it, but it's this game called RuneScape that I played. And it was super nerdy, and I could play with people all over the world, including my friend who was right across town, and we could play at the same time, and it was crazy, and it was the pinnacle of life until mom picked up the phone. <laughs> Some of you know, Right? If you're a little bit younger than me, then you probably have no idea what I'm talking about. Um, But see, there was this thing where you couldn't be on the internet and the phone at the same time, right? You know that if mom picks up the phone, anything that you're in the middle of, gone, right? Better not be downloading something because that's gone. Three days of work out the window just for one song, right? It's gone. And you've got to wait until she gets off the phone to start it all over again and then pray that nobody else calls the house, Right? And see, the funny thing is that we had internet. And yet, looking back, I would tell my younger self, Seth, you have no idea what the internet is. Right? Sure, you had internet, but you don't yet have internet. Right? That phone that kicks you off is actually going to be the primary way that you experience the internet going forward. Crazy thought, right? There's this already, but not yet Younger Seth already had the internet, but at the same time, I had no idea what the internet truly was. I didn't yet have the fullness of the internet. And this is very much how biblical narrative works. There's this constant tension of already, but not yet, right? So we can all agree that Jesus has already come, right? Okay, and yet... We can all agree at the same time that Jesus has yet to come, right? Already, but not yet. There's this constant tension. He has begun this work, but he has certainly not brought that work to its fulfillment at this point. So then, what is the kingdom of God that we inherit now, right? See, when Jesus came, he came teaching the kingdom of God and healing, and those things are not distinct. They work in unison. They're related. He he verbally taught people what the kingdom of God was and what it was all about. And at the same time, he showed them what it was, right? He stepped in and he commanded different things in nature and they obeyed the king. See, with, with COVID, we've gotten just the sliver of a taste of what it meant in the biblical stories to be unclean right? We've just translated the word unclean to quarantined, right? So Jesus comes into the picture and who does he go to? He goes to the quarantined and then he does the unthinkable. He takes off his mask and he touches them. But instead of Jesus getting COVID, both Jesus and the one whom he touched are free of any illness, All right? This is just a sliver of the picture, but let us sink in for a moment. Those of you, especially who have had to quarantine, think about that loneliness and what it would have meant for someone to sit down beside you and simply touch you. See, I'm, I'm a bubble kind of guy, and what I mean by that is I like having my space right? Like, my kids are always all up over me. I'm like, can't you be annoying from like five feet away? Like, why does it have to be right here, right? But that's just kids, I guess. I like my space. And yet, in a moment of pure loneliness, I don't think that there's anything that could compare to the touch of another. And Jesus knew that. He showed people what the kingdom of God was all about. Jesus touched and all things were made well. Illnesses had to obey him. And when he said to leave, they had no option but to leave. They were suddenly in his kingdom. And in all of this, Jesus says to each of us, follow me, follow me. See, this is exactly why as Jesus turns to the sheep and he encourages them for feeding him, for clothing him, and for simply loving him, they're obviously confused because, Jesus, we never did any of that stuff for you. And Jesus tells them that they have actually done that when they did it for the least of these. It was when they fulfilled the mission of Jesus that they loved Jesus that inheritance of the kingdom, is that they picked up the mission of Jesus. As Jesus went out into the darkness and started making pockets of light, he said, follow me. See, there's something uh, incredibly important here that I've been really excited to share with you, actually. I'm gonna get a little nerdy for a moment, and hopefully that's okay, because um, that's what I do. So, in this passage, in this story that Jesus is sharing, can we agree that these examples of helping people, right? Feeding the, the hungry, uh, taking care of the sick, visiting those in prison. These are good works, right? Okay, so, so I'm gonna make this little sketch for you, and, and we'll try and follow what, what exactly it is that Jesus is doing here. And so first, there are good works, and hopefully you can work with my atrocious handwriting because it doesn't get any better. And so this idea of good works is mentioned 14 times in the New Testament. And hopefully that's enough to get your attention. And if we're not careful, this passage can begin to make it look like salvation happens by works instead of faith. But that's absolutely not what Jesus is saying. So hang with me, because Jesus is pulling from different things that are happening in the Old Testament, and he's hyperlinking some things for us. Jesus recognizes that his audience, the people who he's teaching this to, they know the scriptures and so he's, he's hyperlinking things to paint them a bigger picture. And so I, I want to help to take each of us alongside of that, okay? See, in each of the 14 times that good works are mentioned in the New Testament, there is a linkage to a sacrificing of self for the sake of the poor, okay? So can we agree... That when Jesus was talking about feeding the hungry, visiting the imprisoned, clothing the naked, that all of this is a giving of ourselves for the sake of the poor, right? So these good works are naturally related to the poor. And so, we're going to look at a couple verses to see exactly what the Bible is saying about these good works to help us get the framework that Jesus had to go back to what he's referencing. So, just two two passages that we'll look at. But one is Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10. Probably a fairly familiar verse, and it says this For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. What were we created for? good works. That's, that's literally what we were made for, and an avoidance of those good works goes against the fabric of our being. So this is really important, and I want you to tuck that away, okay? The second passage is this, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. Pastor Ricky referenced this passage last week. And Paul writes here, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So there it is again. What does it mean to be complete? It means to be equipped for every good work. See, I mentioned before that Ricky's last message would be helpful for this week, and that's because he really focused last week on how to be with God. Don't ignore that, okay? Because that's part of what this passage is saying. As we dig deeper into looking at these good works, it is so important for each of us to recognize and to understand that we must learn to be with God before we can do for God. We first learn to be with him through scripture so that we can then go out and do the good works that he's created us for. So a couple of things that I want you to take away in this passage here. What was breathed out by God was meant to equip you for all good works. Can you think of anywhere else, any other major Bible stories, maybe at the beginning, hint, right? that deal with the breath of God and goodness. Creation story, right? Right. And it's the very first story in the Bible. From the beginning, God creates Adam by breathing into him. And then he breathes out his instructions not to eat from the tree of knowledge of good and bad. So there's this tree, and this is the best drawing you've ever seen of a tree. Don't argue with me and it's got this wonderful fruit on it, right? And so, the poor is linking. So, all these are linked together, right? And there's this tree, and it's the tree of knowledge of tov. Somebody say tov. Okay, tov. That means good. And ra. Somebody say ra. ra. That means bad. All of you know Hebrew now. You're welcome. And So so let me try to bring this together for you, okay? See, God creates Adam and Eve, and he places them in this kingdom reality. And in that place, he gives them a rule. He tells them that they can eat of any tree except for the tree of knowledge of Tov and Ra. That tree's off limits. Ultimately, what God is saying, as he's commanded Adam and Eve to rule, what's something that you need to know to rule? You need to know good and bad, right? Right? Like, if you don't know that, you're going to be a horrible ruler. And so he's placed them in this position and said, okay, the one tree that you can't eat from is the knowledge of Tov and Ra. And if you eat of it, you will surely die. And the reason is that God is placing Adam and Eve in a position where they have a decision. They can either choose to take this information for themselves and define it on their own, or... They can trust the wisdom of God and the timing of God, and they can trust that God will define good and bad on his own terms and share it with them in due time. Ultimately, we know how the story goes, right? We know that Eve listens to the liar. She eats of the tree, and don't miss this. It wasn't just eating from the tree that was bad. She had already declared herself God by deciding in her heart that she knew what was good and bad and that God didn't need to make that decision for her. And she acted based on that. And now we fast forward to this weird story about these sheep and goats and we're confused about how all this works together and ultimately this is a garden story. More than that, it's a reversal of the garden story. The sheep are those who have surrendered themselves and laid down their kingdoms and said, Jesus, I place my faith in you. I trust you in your kingdom to define good and bad as you will and lead my life accordingly. The sheep are the ones who have of this tree said I'm not going to eat of it. I choose to ignore the tree. And the result of that The result of allowing God to define good and bad on his own terms is what we've already read about. It's what they do for the least of these. That's what happens when you allow Jesus to define good and bad on his own terms, and you trust him in that. A few years back, I had a friend text me and asked me if I knew anybody who would be interested in taking a young husky. And my wife and I, we, we were out and about when this happened and I, I looked at my, from my phone and I looked over at my wife and I, I looked back down at my phone and I, I know that she's always wanted a Husky. And my heart starts racing because I know I've got to make a decision. I've got to say something. And was well, it a good idea to get a Husky? I mean, we already have two dogs. We've got a Labrador, a Labrador and a Chihuahua. Like, we don't need another dog. But my wife wants it. And it's always good to make your wife happy, Right? And so, without even talking to my wife, I texted my friend back, and I said, okay, we'll take it. And you know what? My wife was so happy, and it was awesome, and then we got the husky. (laughs) And let me tell you about my dog named Ollivander. See, this dog, this dog has ruined our sliding glass door. He has ruined our couch. He has ruined our floors. He has eaten limited-edition DVDs. He's wrecked almost everything in our house that he possibly could, and he's even almost caught the house on fire. That is not a hyperbole, that is a true story. And sometimes I look back and I think to myself, you really thought that was a good idea? Like, see, Let's be honest, church. We're terrible at defining good and bad on our own. But if we're going to be honest, I've also been in places where I saw someone struggling and I felt like I should help, but I convinced myself that it wouldn't be good because I've got a family to take care of. And do you know what I'm doing? I'm defining good and bad on my own terms in that moment. And at the same time, I'm telling God that I don't trust him to take care of my family. There are times that we can look back and laugh at how bad we are about this, but that doesn't take away from the severity and from the seriousness that accompanies this. Ultimately, Jesus makes it very clear how serious this is. He tells us in this passage that those who take care of the least of these are those who will inherit the kingdom of God. But he also tells us that those who continue to live by their own agenda, who continue to claim themselves as kings and queens of their own lives, that they would be cast into eternal fire. Jesus didn't pull punches on this. So I think it would be wrong for us to try and pull punches on this. When you, like Eve, take what truly only belongs to God, there are consequences. God told Adam and Eve that when they ate of the tree of knowledge of good and bad that they would surely die. When we try to define good and bad on our own we face the same results. We have the same decision in front of us. We can trust God and place our faith in Him and enter into a fullness of life or we can choose to do this without God. And the ultimate result of that is to turn our backs on life itself. That's the big truth that Jesus is teaching here. Who who are you going to place your faith in? Him or yourself? Him or the government? Him or your family? The options are endless, but there's only one correct answer. And Jesus makes it clear to us that that we can go all day long saying that we're committed to, to Him. But our actions expose our decisions. If you've trusted in Jesus, then there will be an outpouring of the good works that he's created us for. You'll have a heart for the least of these. And so I want to challenge first and foremost that if you do not have a relationship with Jesus yet, when the service concludes, there will be some people down here in the front of the stage, myself included, who would absolutely love to pray with you and talk to you about this man, Jesus, who has transformed our lives. And what it would mean for you to step into a relationship with him as well. And, and through this life, we're, we're still going to make mistakes. We're still going to do things wrong. We're still going to define good and bad on our own terms from time to time. But Jesus is looking for us to, to have a moment where we say, no, Jesus, I'm, I'm setting aside my kingdom. This is your kingdom. You're the one in charge. You get to define this on your terms. I place myself under your rule. This is your kingdom. I'm I'm not going to take from the tree. I'm going to let you define things in my life. And the second challenge, second challenge is for, for us to live out our faith in Jesus. Live it out by loving the least of these. Live it out by living out the mission that Jesus has started and by living out what it means to inherit the kingdom of God in the here and now. I want you to hear the words of Jesus and feel the eternal weight of every decision that you make. The weight of your decision whether or not to follow Jesus. And the weight of how every decision thereafter plays into the world following Christ alongside you. Inheriting the kingdom of God is an already but not yet event. Christ followers, we we haven't gotten to step into the fullness of that kingdom of God and into that perfection where we will spend eternity with Jesus. But we have inherited the mission that Jesus came and established in the bringing of his kingdom. And we're called to impact the world with God's wisdom and his knowledge of good and bad. And bringing that and, and reshaping our culture with pockets of light in a world of darkness. And I don't know about you all, but I, I'm, I'm a person who I'm obsessed with tools, right? And, and not the kind of tools that you're thinking of, like power tools and stuff like that, because I don't know how to use those. But my kind of tools are like, I, I like apps and software for, for researching my Bible so that I can get nerdy about this kind of stuff and new music gear and, and things like that. Those are the tools that I love. And, and, and I use these. That's what tools are for, right? So that you can use them. And I've got one tool that I use that reads the Bible out loud to me every single day so that whether I'm driving or out doing things or whatever it is, I can always have that time with God. And I'm using this tool because I can listen to it whenever to get through, read through the whole Bible multiple times this year. I'll actually finish the book of Leviticus later today. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus already done for the new year. See, I'm a person who loves using tools and I know some of you are too right? And, and so we want to highlight some of the tools that we can use to reach the least of these, to be the people and the church that God has called us to be. One of the tools you've heard us highlight it multiple times recently is membership. And membership, I want to tell you, is more than just getting your name on a roster. Membership is a tool to help you walk in the wisdom of God, and it's a partnership. Here, here's what we're saying. I want you to hear our hearts on this. As the staff of South Valley, we want to partner with you in inheriting the mission of Jesus and seeing more sheep than goats. We want your help. We need your help. God created us for community and we believe that you are a valuable part of the mission of Jesus. And so we want to encourage you to embrace and use the tools that God's made available to you and to possibly sign up for our membership class coming up on the 23rd. Another tool that we have that we've been encouraging to you is small groups. This is an opportunity for us to, to go and to love the least of these beyond these walls. You know, with some of us living in Lamore, some of us in Hanford, some of us in Visalia, building these small groups and, and branching out into different places and pockets of darkness and saying, I'm going to do life together with these people and we're going to serve our community and love our community and all through it, we're going to draw closer to Jesus. Man, don't miss these tools that we're trying to, to give to you and that we're ourselves trying to embrace. Because we want to be as effective as we possibly can in transforming the world for Jesus. The parable of the sheep and the goats teaches a powerful truth about salvation. It teaches about the initial commitment to Jesus and the lifelong commitment thereafter. And we pray that that as we move forward that you would consider partnering with us, that we could impact the world and share the love of Jesus in the most effective way possible. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you we thank you for who you are we thank you for your word and for what you have to offer to us jesus we we just asked this morning that you would stir in our hearts and, and that you would uh, transform us that you would convict us that each one of us whether we're in a relationship with you or not that you would show us what that next step is that we would leave this place actively pursuing being closer to you tomorrow than we are today that we would be finding ways to be about the mission that you have given to us jesus that we could step into our inheritance, that we could identify and love the least of these and know, Jesus, that as we are looking to love you deeper, that this is exactly one of the ways that you've shown us we can. Jesus, we ask that if there's anyone in here this morning who's not already in a relationship with you, uh, we just pray over that person right now that they would feel your love, that they would feel your presence, that they would know that you came and that you lived a perfect life and died in their place on behalf of all the wrong that they've ever done because you want a relationship with them, because you love them. We pray not only that you would convict them, but that you would also place some of us around them, that that we as your followers would be able to encourage them and share the gospel with them. Jesus, we pray for for wonderful and exciting things to happen in 2022 at South Valley. We pray that you would use our church and that we could be your hands and feet in ways that we've never seen or experienced before. We love you, we thank you, and we lay ourselves at your feet. It's in your perfect name that we pray. Amen. Thank you, church. We hope you have a wonderful week. God bless.